G'day, basketball world. As you may have noticed by the fact that I'm speaking first here tonight, uh, Dan has gone on a bit of a break uh, for the birth of his second child. So he's just going to step away from the microphone just just for a little while, uh, but he'll be he'll be back before you know it. Um, you know, congratulations to uh, Dan and Liz. It's uh, it's a very exciting time and a very busy time. So that I'm sure he'll be back before you know it. But on this show here, we'll be talking about obviously the World Cup, NBL's restarted, NBA preseason. You know, on the NBL X NBA or versus NBA action is all in full swing. So we'll be talking all about that. But before we get too deep on any of that. We've got to deep dive the Women's World Cup. And to do that, I've got a very special guest, uh, someone I actually commentated with at the NBL One National Finals. Uh, let's not waste any time, any more time and let's get Jacinda Govan on the blower. At the Capitals, does the ball ever lie, Steph? Never, ever. All right, as promised, we have... Jacinta Govan from the Shooting the Breeze podcast. Not only that, she is an amazing air, uh, commentator who's commentated at, I believe, the the Flames, uh, NBL One East. Obviously, came with me and did the NBL One National Finals down in Melbourne. And on top of that, just you know, just because she can, occasionally does international games for FIBA, J- just for kicks, just for kicks. Jacinta, how are we doing tonight? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for that very uh, lovely and coloured intro. Um, yeah, just for kicks, I love staying up all night doing fever games. It's great. <laughs> but no, I shouldn't say it like that. It's actually really, really fun and a great experience. But um, I'm really well, thanks. I'm day two, sorry, day three technically of my FIBA Women's World Cup come down. Um, thankfully, I only returned to work on Thursday um, in a couple of days' time. So otherwise, so far, so good. I did have to have a couple of early nights, like 8 p.m. early nights the last two nights because the World Cup just took everything out of me in a good way, in a good way. Well, yes, you say that. It was an absolutely amazing tournament. Um, I loved every minute of it. But before we get too deep into that, um, you you are you do have your own podcast. Uh, you you got the Shooting the Breeze podcast. Can you... Tell the Ball Don't Lie listeners about that, the mission statement and, you know, where they can find that that amazing podcast. Yeah, so, I, yeah, like you said, I co-host the podcast Shooting the Breeze. It's a podcast purely dedicated to uh, discussing and promoting uh, women's basketball in every facet. Um, it was created during COVID by a couple named Paul and Mary who are the co-host and the producer, respectively. Um, and they found a gap, especially in COVID, with the uncertainty of uh, the WNBL in that year. That was before we learned that the WNBL would be entering a hub season up in Queensland. So they just wanted to keep some discussion and some content about Australian women's basketball going um, until we found out what was happening. And um, I met them when I was commentating some of the live streams for the Sydney Flames in 2019. And they used to actually do the back end of the live stream to YouTube. So they gave me a ring uh, last year in the, during the Tokyo Olympics and invited me to be a guest co-host for a few episodes just to cover the Olympics. And then I ended up staying. So 
Um, it's been a really, really great ride with the podcast the last 12, 13 months. Um, and you can find us on all podcast platforms, including like Apple, Spotify, Amazon. Uh, um, and you can find Shooting the Breeze on Twitter at The Breeze Pod. And you can find them on Instagram as well at Shooting the Breeze. So, um, yeah, for any, any fans of basketball, especially women's basketball, highly recommend you check us out. We also talk about a lot of different facets to women's basketball as well. So we've had episodes about social media. We've interviewed coaches. Um, we've interviewed uh, former players and past administrators. Um, you know, we recently interviewed Timsey and Screeny um, leading into the World Cup. And then we also interviewed some people from the Melbourne Boomers, including Adam Mackay, who uh, created the documentary about the uh, Melbourne boom is called Sideline, which is currently on SBS On Demand. So we definitely cover a lot of facets to women's basketball. Yep. We had Adam McKay on our show as well. Um, but the one name in there that's got me all jelly is definitely Timsy. Uh, I've, yeah. <sighs> the, you know, for, for those who aren't really sure exactly what Michelle Timms sort of was to Australian women's basketball, she was Lauren Jackson before there was a Lauren Jackson. She was that, you know, high profile WNBA style superstar um, that led Australian basketball before LJ was around. Um, so, yeah, and did an amazing job on the commentary um, over the, I, I love the moments where her and Screeny were just, you know, they were up off their seat. They were, you know, yelling and screaming and just having a great old time. And then that, that awkward moment when you get as a commentator comes along every now and again, we're like, oh, yeah, I'm actually commentating. I'm not supposed to be just a fan of what's happening in front of me. But, uh, yeah, it, it was great to see um, Timsey and Screeny on the on the broadcast as well. But let's let let's jump into this. Um, you know, we're here to talk about the the World Cup and some of the implications um, of it and things like that. Obviously, you were there the the whole time, as you say. And uh, yeah, so let's jump straight in. Obviously, we're going to focus on the the Opals. Um, you know, but how crucial do you think that? See, for mind, I think that uh, that first loss to France was absolutely crucial for the Opals um, in basically how they needed to to rally as a team and all sorts of things. Would you agree with that or did, would you have a different take on that first game? No, I, I like that you put a positive spin onto that loss because we lost by 13 opening match because I was, to be quite honest, I was fuming after that game that we had lost because it was definitely a game we could have and should have won. But um, I think, yeah, like you said, it probably in hindsight was really an important loss and perhaps an important early lesson for the Opals just to help them perhaps adjust to a, a, a Sandy needed to adjust her rotations um, based on the game, which I felt like she did a, a better job in the next game. And as the games went on, I felt like Sandy's uh, rotations and combinations and um, starting fives, she made some really quick adjustments, which I think were to our advantage. So Without that loss to France, she wouldn't have had that um, kind of point point to improve on. Um, I think also it uh, it gave the Opals a, a, a the Opals had to adjust to the playing in front of a home crowd. I know after that game, I spoke to a couple of the current Opals during the week, and they admitted to feeling the pressure 
of, um, you know, with the whole tumultuous 12 months from the aftermath that was Tokyo and playing on home court and having all eyes on them um, with the drama around them and things like that. They've done a really, really good job of recultivating their team culture um, and being very focused on performing their best for this World Cup. And I think all that pressure kind of came to a head in that French game, but um, they really needed to adjust to that pressure, to playing under that pressure in front of the home crowd too. Um, and I know that uh, I think it really showed the value of Tolo and our inside game. Um, the one big learning point from a from a game standpoint from that game against France was they just kept trying to force a lot of these uh, handoffs at the top of the three-point line that just weren't working. And at times that Tolo didn't start that game and she kind of had limited minutes for that first game, you know, despite having a long experience of playing in France. But the times that she came on, she made an impact and then her impact and the fact that our inside game needed to be used a lot more was a big uh, lesson from that French game. So I think you're right in saying that um, there were the, the loss was probably in some ways a good thing. Wow. Okay. A lot of takeaways. Uh, the big one for me there is someone I'm sort of co-hosting or interviewing saying I'm right. That on this show, that is rare. Um, I, I'll openly agree with everything you said. Can, yep. Uh, I definitely agree. agree there, but I think it was the, almost a punch in the face we needed. And yeah, the crowds were absolutely amazing. And uh, as you say, I'm, I'm not quite sure they were, uh, the Opals were necessarily ready for that coming in. So, all right, next game, or well, next two games, actually. Um, the Opals were able to rally um, and came away with a massive and a solid win. Um, what were the, what, what do you think the keys were, keys to success were for, for those next two games? Obviously, they had the big game against Mali, almost doubled up, uh, and then we got, across, uh, got the W against Serbia. Yeah, I think it was really lucky that we drew Mali for that second game, especially coming off a loss, uh, losing a game that we perhaps should have won. Um, the game against Mali was a good opportunity for the Opals, as you said, just to regroup, but probably approach the game a little bit more relaxed than they would have approached the game against France. So just being able to get through some of their offensive sets, get a little bit more confidence with their communication on defence um, and tightening up a lot of those little areas that, were going to be really important down the stretch of the tournament. Um, and I think being able to beat Mali by such a large margin, um, I think they knew in the back of their minds that if this group of death was going to come down to four and against and three-way ties and whatnot, which is exactly what we saw, a large margin against Mali was going to come in handy. Um, but it also, especially coming off a big loss, you've got to kind of sometimes treat those games as like, you can't, you can't slack off. You can't just turn a good game on and off like a tap. Like you have to play your hardest through the whole uh, game because when it comes to the crunch of a semifinal against China, um, those things are going to be more automatic and not so forced. Uh, but then the game against Serbia actually was the, I was quite nervous about because Serbia's defence is known to be quite relentless and, and pretty tough. Um, but I was really impressed with, well, we had a slow start again in that game, but I was pretty impressed with how comfortable the Opals were in that game compared to the French game. They just seemed a little bit more relaxed and they seemed a lot more comfortable with um, what offense they were running in that game. And we saw as the games went on a lot more inside action, 
a lot more high-low action between the likes of Ezzy and Tolo or LJ and Tolo. Um, I think Sandy did a really good job of putting the right combination of bigs on in that game in particular. Um, so I think in that Serbia game was definitely executing our half-court offence with the high-low action and, and, and a lot more ball movement. Um, but it was really the defence uh, in a lot of the Opals games that I think kept them like really competitive, that real gritty, intense, uh, disruptive defence that the Opals are known for. Definitely. Now, <clears throat> did I see footage of you shooting around on the court after one of these games? <laughs> yes, you did. Oh. Making a three, mind you. <clears throat> Sinking a three ball on the main court. That was me. Okay. Now, I only saw the first maybe three seconds of it. I saw a brick. I saw a brick. Or was there a second later shot? <laughs> there was a brick. The first one was a brick. Oh, look, to be fair, it was on target. It just rimmed out. And then uh, the second shot was a swish. And then the third shot, which I didn't put on social media, was an air ball. So how's that for consistency? But right. I promise I definitely made I definitely made a three and I was shooting on the main court. I know, that, that, that's fine. So you basically came out like the Opals, a little bit gun shy early, but nailed the second <laughs> one. And if you, know, if you hadn't mentioned anything, no one would have known about the air ball. It would have been fine. It would have been fine. Exactly. No, yeah. one of my friends caught the air ball and sent it to me, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> well, you know, big court, big moment. And uh, yeah, so sometimes things don't work out. Dreams turn to nightmares, right? right? But it was uh, because of Molten, I, I won a like a community award through Molten and the FIBA Women's World Cup in partnership started an initiative called uh, the Female uh, Local Champions. So we had to apply and write about how we're involved in um, female basketball in our community, uh, what we'd like to see improved, what we uh, have our hopes for the improvement of participation in the women's game and some perceived barriers around that. Um, so thankfully I was picked of one of three uh, that got to uh, be a Molten champion and it was the first time that they've done that initiative and they're hoping to do it with other World Cups and World Cup qualifiers as well. Um, so part of the, on that particular night, we were taken down courtside to get some stuff signed by the Opals. But unfortunately that night they weren't allowed to stop and talk to fans after the game. But uh, then we went to get some promo shots in the middle of the court because it's got that beautiful mm. um, FIBA Women's World Cup design, um, you know, First Nations design as the logo. And then we were, we were allowed to have a couple of shots. So that's how I managed to put up some threes on the main court. You're right. That is a gorgeous logo and congratulations on uh, <clears throat> getting the call up through Malton there. That sounds like a really amazing, um, amazing thing. And as you say, hopefully they continue that on uh, moving forward as well. All right. Back onto the on-court action. Canada game. It was one of those really tight back and forth games um, that really showed, in my mind, the brilliance of Brondello in the way that she called out Ezzy, I think it was like seven minutes, five or six minutes into that first quarter. Um, she really called her out for basically, you know, not not stepping up to the mark. Um, then Ezzy went off and had an absolute banger of a game. <clears throat> um, who were some of the other crucial pieces of that win for you? Um, well, before we skip Ezzy, I have to. We have to 
give a shout out to that huge block mm. that Ezzy had in that game that sent the ball into the orbit of another planet. That was outstanding. Something just clicked for Ezzy in that game. I don't know if it was Sandy kind of giving a, a bit of a rough around the edges, but, you know, I think Sammy Whitcomb did a really good job of getting Ezzy involved in that game on some of those back cuts and Steph Talbot as well. But for me in that game, um, there were just a couple of combinations that started to really click. Uh, so things like, so like Sammy and Ezzy um, had a really good uh, synchronicity with each other and also Steph and Ezzy and Steph and Tolo as well were working really well together. It was this, particularly they changed um, some of their half-court offense compared to the other games. They changed from the handoff um, at the top of the three-point line to a simple pick and roll. And because Canada were overplaying the uh, wing players so much, that pick and roll and the back cuts were working really nicely. But I feel like um, in that game in particular, I think it was the energy coming off the bench that still made a big difference. So the turning point in that game, we were down by 11. Then we had two quick threes in a row and all of a sudden the momentum was going in our favour. So that was just coming off the back of people like Christy Wallace and Darcy Garvin doing the simple things right, like playing high-intensity defence, making sure the ball was getting reversed um, on the offensive end. And it opened up really good shots for um, Garvin and for Magin in particular. They were the two three-pointers that really turned it around for the Opals. Um, and Garvin played some really good minutes as well on defense. She's definitely proven herself to be one of our best players. And I'm really excited to see how well she's going to play in Europe um, now that she's not returning to WNBL. But I feel like overall it was, it was those combos of Sammy and Ezzy, Tolo Talbot, and sometimes um, Talbot and Ezzy as well. But the bench for me made the difference in that game. All right. Opal's, uh, then got up over Japan. They lost that first quarter, but then ground them down in the next uh, in quarters two, three, and four, winning all of them. Then miraculously, with some help of some other results, um, that got us back into first place for the group, which led to for me the the high watermark was that quarterfinal win. It was it was a vibe that that place was just. It, it was absolutely pumping. Uh, what was it like to be in the house? Because it was great just to sit back and watch on the TV, but it felt like one of those games that would have been absolutely amazing to be there for. Yeah, I agree with um, saying it was the high watermark, that Belgian game, because for me, that was the best start, the start to a game the Opals had had all tournament. Um, and again, very in sync on the offensive end, lots of high-low action and st straight out of the gate, the Opals were like, we're, we're going to take this game and run with it. Um, and the, I, because the whole thing is when we beat Japan and then Serbia beat France, which fell in our favour for us to end up as first in the group, like after the Japan game, the, during the Japan game, you know, we were, you know, a little bit sceptical. We don't like to take Japan lightly, but there was a point in the game when we were watching where we felt comfortable, the Opals looked comfortable, and we knew that we were going to win that game. It was The stress actually came after when we didn't know where we were going to fall, and because the games were so late, we didn't want to stick around and find out. So we kind of had a, a rough thing thinking, where are we going to fall in the group? We don't really want to cross over and have to face someone like the US or China so early. Um, so thankfully we crossed over with Belgium and like I said, had the best start uh, the Opals could have had all tournament. I was still a bit worried about Belgium because they had such a great Olympics campaign 12 months ago, but 
to our advantage, the main player from Belgium, uh, Emma Miesemann, was out injured by then. And I also caught up with coach Paul Goris very briefly the night before, and he told me he was doing So once I knew he was doing the scout, I felt very confident we are going to win. But on the floor, every game, every Opals game I attended, well, I attended all of them, but especially the Belgium game, a lot of people started to turn up. And sure, it was a lot of the people that were turning up for every other Opals game as well, but they just started to get louder and more invested and becoming a real kind of united group of fans rather than just a bunch of Opals fans like sitting next to each other in parallel enjoying the game. Um, it was The atmosphere was awesome. Everyone was in a really good mood. You could tell the Opals looked comfortable. That made us feel more comfortable. Um, but the atmosphere, like, was incredible. I don't think I've, or perhaps next to seeing the Sydney Kings win the championship last year, but I feel like the, the Opals crowd was really emotionally invested and um, you could tell they were into it a little bit more than just fans, you know, they were taking it personally. And everyone turned up um, to be just as loud as they were the last game and just got louder and louder. I think the pinnacle, though, of the Australian fandom or the atmosphere was in the semi-final when it was China versus Australia because that sold out. Um, and it felt like the Opals were actually playing on home, an away game on home soil. So mm. that was a bit, that was quite a unique experience. But, yeah, that, that Belgium game was the tipping point where we knew that the fans were in it for the long haul. Yeah, it, it was... It was genuinely great to watch. You, know, you walked away just feeling all sorts of tingles and goosebumps, and uh, it, it was definitely great. But all right, let's do it. Let's rip the band-aid off. The China game. Uh, I believe personally, we lost this game because of um, Han Shu, seven footer, seven foot plus. Um, she had some of the bigs and guards looking over their shoulders and hearing footsteps that weren't always there. I mean, you had Tolo with those two misses, um, Ezzy, um, uh, I believe there was even a Staff Talbot miss right in the paint as well as Sammy, um, all, all in that game right at the rim shots that I feel as if we would have made in every other game, but you know, Big old seven-footer. Um, when that ball, when you've just got that fear of that ball being rocketed into another orbit, as you said um, about Ezzy's earlier. Um, you know, but what were what were some of the points for you that you that you thought um, were where we just lost grasp of that uh, finals berth? So it was really interesting because Hanzu hadn't been getting a lot of minutes up until that game, so she wasn't someone I was considering to be a real threat. Uh, coming into the semi-final, purely based on the minutes that were given to the other Chinese players in the in the group games in the quarterfinal, um, but one of their main players was out with flu, so perhaps that's why Han Zhu ended up getting more minutes instead. Um, but that game, I knew that game was going to be was going to be close. And I knew it was going to go down to the wire. I knew it was going to be uncomfortable um, and very physical. Uh, for, for the whole, like before God, we went into it. Um, and it, it, that was exactly what it was, what it was. Like no team, neither team felt comfortable in their offensive sets at all. I don't, I don't think, you know, I think there were very few moments where either team actually successfully executed an offensive set to get 
a good shot. I think a lot of the good shots for each team came off, you know, either second chances or um, perhaps free throws because there were a lot of fouls in that game. But going back to your point about, you know, a lot of Opals players missing just wide open shots. I was talking to someone earlier today. They made a really good point that because it's such a high intensity game, there's so much tension and feeling of like being uncomfortable the opportunities when you got to have an open shot, you were still feeling that tension. You couldn't relax just to release a shot and, and to make it as you normally would day to day. You were still playing with that tension. So that transferred into your shot. And that's why we saw a lot of layups just uh, like bouncing out or coming out, um, and which we would normally not expect uh, from the Opals team to, to perform like. Uh, so it was a very, very uncomfortable game. I feel like it literally just came down to those last two possessions where we turned the ball over and we fouled um, to give them two shots. That's, for me, all it really came down to. I guess I could go back. Uh, I'd, if I were to go back and watch the replay properly, because I haven't re-watched any of the games um, from the TV, which gives you a very different perspective, as you know, from watching it from the stands. I'm sure we could pick apart a lot more, but... Generally, just a very uncomfortable game that came down to chance and circumstance. Yeah, the in-house DJ definitely did all they could. Uh, I mean, with that, was it 3.2 seconds left on the clock? Lines up, you're the voice, Johnny Farnham, you know, plays it loud in the stadium, you know, gets every, all the Aussies, you know, all hyped up, ready to go. And then as he went to the basket and just couldn't finish, um, you know, it, came down to that in the end um as you say it was, it was an uncomfortable sort of it was a complete opposite uh it didn't have that same vibe at all they didn't get out to that you know really great start like against belgium and it came down really tight and yeah just it, oh you know, and one of the big things i think as well was that uh that high uh, high amount of chinese crowd that were very very boisterous and it almost you know turned completely it was completely different to the night before as well um so yeah definitely would have made for an absolute mix of emotions for the players for sure all right but that did give us the opportunity um you know tough loss but that did give us the opportunity for that that swan song game the game that lj deserved can can you talk us through that game as, as you saw it there there in the stadium watching it how amazing is LJ? So I don't think we could have written a better ending for LJ's career as an Opal. Uh, she obviously was getting a lot more time in the game against Canada than China. And, you know, since then, you know, hindsight is a wonderful thing. And since then, uh, some people have come out criticising Sandy for not playing LJ more in the China game, thinking that that would have uh, got us a, a ticket to the gold medal match. But... You know, like you said before, Mal, like if we hadn't lost that China game, I don't think we would have been able to see such an awesome swan song for LJ in the end. So sometimes things just work out how they're supposed to work out. But I, I happened to watch um, both medal matches with some of my best friends who I met through basketball. And as the game continued, we're thinking, okay, she's, you know, LJ is getting a lot more time. And then I was watching her stats and I was like, oh, her, her points are creeping up. I mean, she's got 12 now and that was the most that she had at the tournament and then it just kept going. And I was like, oh, wow, she's actually going to get to 20 points. 
No, in no way did I expect LJ to get 30 points in that game against Canada. She was literally the difference because we won by 30 points. Um, she just played with so much ease and she looked so relaxed and I feel like she probably went out there thinking I'm just going to do absolutely whatever I can to make the most of the moment. I know she went on record saying that she was very emotional at the start of the game and uh, I was really really impressed that she was able to channel that emotion into such great performance for her last game as an Opal. But absolutely unbelievable to think that we saw, A, the Opals win a bronze medal on home soil in the context of what's happened with the Opals program the last 12 months. But, B, just to have LJ just show us why she is the GOAT of Australian women's, of Australian basketball, um, really just going out on top, showcasing all of her skill, um, I just, I hope she's just really, really proud of herself for going out in such a way. Yeah, I'm definitely glad you said uh, of Australian basketball because I, I'm very proud to say I think it was episode two or three. Um, Dan asked me that question: Where does LJ rank? I'm very proud to say that I said she's the greatest Australian basketballer that we have produced, man, woman, full stop. She's it by any measure. She is absolutely amazing. And the fact that she's been able to take this, you know, seven years away, um, come back and you know, ha- have this level of success. And I, I also don't think it's uh, fair to, you know, slap Brondello with this. Oh, if we only played LJ. She's also a 42-year-old who'd been sitting for, was it almost two, was it two and a half quarters by the time that, you know, game got tied again. Um Look, I know LJ's great, but I, you know, even Michelle Timms uh, in earlier in the in the piece uh, in the tournament was saying how difficult it would be for a 42-year-old like LJ after cooling down all that time on the bench to, you know, be injected back into the game and, you know, be able to just instantly go. You know, that, that that's going to be tricky for, uh, for anyone, no matter how amazing, um, even for LJ, I think that would have been difficult in that China game. Would she have gone? Yeah. Would she have given it a hundred percent? Yeah. But, um, you know, you, you've got to go with what works and I, you know, I, I don't knock Brondello for, uh, the coaching decision she made. I, I think that one was more, um, lost in tight situations on the court for me. Um, but as you say, it was absolutely amazing and we wouldn't have, you know, we frankly wouldn't have got that uh, that winning of the bronze. Um, speaking of USA, obviously you know got up over China. Um, we we know what happened um, both times USA played China. Do you think there was a team on the other side of the draw um, that could have gotten over uh, USA, or uh, is that just a a bit of a hopeful pipe dream? Do you think? Yeah, no, unfortunately, like, even before the World Cup, uh, I think I was going on the record with some other podcast saying, oh, you know, the Opals will get gold. And I was like, oh, then I changed it to they'll get on the podium because I really didn't see, you can't, I didn't, couldn't see anyone really getting, uh, getting past the US at this, at this particular tournament. I don't think even in our group of deaths, anyone could have gotten past the the US. Definitely teams would have challenged them to a point. Um, And I think the US had that against, can't quite remember, there was one game where 
they were the the US came across like their first real arm wrestle, first real challenge. I think it was perhaps against Serbia in the quarterfinal. Um, that was quite close for most of the game until the US ran away with it. And some of the US players came out and openly said we really needed that challenge. Um, but I don't think any team at full strength was going to beat that US team. They just had way too much firepower and their depth. I mean, the Opals had depth, but the depth of the US team was even deeper. I mean, you had someone like Sabrina uh, Ionescu being the, the 12th person player yeah and she she was averaging what like 20 plus points a game the last WNBA season and she's their 12th player yeah no one's getting past that US team yeah and like especially when you're adding late a piece like Asia Wilson two-time WNBA um, MVP comes in late and you know after winning with the with the aces and just coming off that high and I love her in press conferences. She is amazing. Um, but, uh, you know, as you say, ju- just way too much depth in that team, which is fine. You know, we medaled, we got that LJ game. We had an, a, a great tournament. It, it had a real vibe to it. It was absolutely amazing. And there was also, you know, complicated, uh, sorry, not complications implications from the world cup and the opals run because we have wmbl starting up just around the corner so my question for you uh one of my final questions actually uh with the nbl just around the just around the wmbl sorry just around the corner um which club do you think walks away from this world cup just just feeling a step ahead feeling a step ahead that's a good question i would have to probably say Probably Melbourne Boomers because they have they had three people in the Opals. They had Tess Magin, Kayla George, Christy Wallace. Christy Wallace has gone from Flyers to Boomers mm-hmm. um, and now spending, you know, the last few months together as Opals, they can easily transfer that, I, I imagine, into the Boomers set. Um, they'd be three of the Boomers' main players, so a lot of things would be run for them or around them on the offensive end. Uh, so I would expect the boomers would be off to a bit of a head start in in implanting some of the existing opals. Um, but that doesn't mean I think I think the flies that you know are probably going to be probably going to win the championship next season. I'm expecting a boomers flyers um, final, Melbourne Derby, especially now that the flies have signed to Carly Ernst, who's come from the boomers. And obviously LJ is now playing for the Flyers. And I know that Abby Bishop and LJ have a great friendship off the court. They have a great uh, chemistry on the court as well as a 4-5, so I can expect a lot of high-low action between them. That's going to be pretty unstoppable. Um, I don't yeah. think there will be a lot of teams yeah. that will be able to to defend that very well. Especially when you throw in uh, both Rochies as well um, in those guard spots. So... <sighs> yeah, um, it really feels like uh, while Shane Hill's, you know, collecting the infinity stones of guards down there with the flames, um, it, it really feels like it, it could be could be the flyer season. It really could be the flyer season. So, but yeah, I, don't, I get that he's a guard and he probably likes guards, but mate, you need some picks. <laughs> the infinity stone of guards is the best way I've heard that phrase. Like, even his DPs are guards. Yeah. 
I just, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not too sure what his thought process is. And they're all, at, at least three of those guards are guards who like to have the offense run for them or around them. So I don't know how that's going to work out. Someone is going to have to be, or one or two of them are going to have to be mature enough to take, uh, you know, a back seat when it comes down to some offensive sets. I'm just really interested to see how some of the chemistry will work out when you've got at least three guards I know of in that rotation that want to shoot the most shots. Yeah, well, we saw... I won't say who the three are. <laughs> we saw up here we had uh, Tiana and Shiloh obviously playing for the Wizards in the NBL 1. Um, that mm. that worked to a point, but again, that team had a similar problem um, with a lack of a lack of depth in the big spot. Um, uh, yeah, the, they had Cunningham, um, but, you know, after her and if she wasn't on, it was, yeah, um, you know, and uh, it was actually gave me one of my favourite um, commentating moments actually was when the Capitals took down the Wizards um, for our last uh, or last home game of the season up here in the NBL 1 North for the Brisbane Capitals uh, women. And, again, it was the vibe. Like, we got down early. They you know, built it back. They went inside. Capitals, same, same sort of concept. Work with their bigs. Work with what they had over the Wizards. And then everyone, every, every fan of the Capitals stuck around for an hour afterwards and just stood around on the court. And it was just absolutely amazing, amazing vibe. But, uh, you know, same sort of idea. Um, yeah, how it's going to work, I don't know. It'll be interesting. Um, you never know. It could it could spawn a Brad Pitt Moneyball-style movie from it if it works. But uh, the, I think there's a lot of people out here sort of sort of thinking the same thing. But... We'll just have to wait and see. And, of course, don't uh, don't write off our, our Townsville team, our, uh, our one and only WNBL team up, uh, up here in Queensland. You know, they've got a really good crew. They've also added um, Michaela Roof uh, this year to an already solid unit. So, uh, you know, it, uh, it could be a very interesting um, – well, I know it'll be a very interesting WNBL season. I can't wait for it to start. But that does bring us to the end of official proceedings, Jacinta. Um, I do have a couple of quick questions. We do normally do a um, uh, a, a fast five. Uh, so quick, quick fire questions if you've got a couple of minutes before you go. Absolutely. Fire away. Awesome. All right. Uh, first one. What is your favorite number and why basketball number? Ah, so um, my, initially my my favorite playing number was number seven. Um, when I started playing basketball, particularly reps, I wasn't really, uh, I didn't really have a favorite number at all. And then in under 12s um, in country New South Wales, we have this thing called Jamboree. I don't know if you have it in Queensland, but it's for under 12s and a whole bunch of country kids. Um, you know, you go and try out and they pick a lot of country kids and then they mix you up in different teams from different people from all around country New South Wales. And um, then you just go and play at a tournament. And I don't think there's a winner in the end, but the idea of it is obviously for player development, but also coaches development um, across the across country. So I had number seven given to me during that tournament and I felt like I played really well. So that's why I stuck with number seven. And then growing up, learning that the likes 
some of my favorite players now play seven, Penny Taylor and Steph Talbot. So that's kind of stuck me. But when I came back to play, so in my playing history, I played, you know, I started reps in when I was under 12s and I played pretty much all the way up until 2008. Uh, I had a season with the Forestville Eagles in Adelaide and at that time basketball wasn't enjoyable at all. Um, so that's when I decided for the first time to retire. And then a decade later, I came out of retirement to play uh, for Central Coast Crusaders in Waratah League, which is now NBL one But uh, in the year leading up to um, – and the, the year that I came back to play was the first time also in just under a decade that the Central Coast Crusaders had a women's team. So we're relaunching the women's team. Um, I was coming out of retirement and we'll – you know, very excited. But in the, the year leading up to me returning, one of my best friends passed away from breast cancer. So her playing number was 13. So when I returned to play for Crusaders in 2018, I chose to wear 13 in her honour. So 7 and 13 are my two numbers. You would actually be surprised, well, you may not be surprised, but um, half the people we get on the show talk about when they were little, they started playing in number seven. It's, it's just one of those, 13 is a real oh, one. There you go. <laughs> yep. uh, including, uh, including myself for a time. So <laughs> it's one of those numbers that almost hey, everybody has history I with. To, I used to have a gold seven pendant as well. Me and my three best friends from juniors bought them. We went to play club nationals in Dandenong when we were top age 18s. And uh, the four of us went to get out we got our playing numbers on a gold chain and i used to wear it so much that it broke in half oh well it's nice that you wore it that much that's good all right uh okay uh favorite <laughs> favorite movie <laughs> favorite movie like does it have to be basketball related no no uh, just, just your favorite. personal favorite, favorite movie. movie yep Ah, oh, favorite movie is um, Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Yep, I have, have seen, seen trailers it? for it. Um, Chris Evans is in it, right? He plays the. Yes. Yep. Chris Evans is in it. Yep, plays uh, a bit of a douche. Of Chris Evans. He does. He plays like this uh, pro skateboarder turned movie star, and kind of just takes out of that whole. Um, kind of arrogant persona and it's hilarious it's got everything you want it's got comedy and romance and action and video game references it's the best movie nice all right follow-up question to that so uh shooting the breeze goes absolutely bunta you know totally international hollywood comes calling after you some of your commentary <laughs> stuff and they make the jacinta govan movie who do you get to play jacinta govan <laughs> Oh, I think, um, yeah, that's tough. I am split between Maya Rudolph um, because she, uh, I, I really like her style of comedy and some of the weird, funny things she does, I find myself doing as well. So I hope that she could bring that to my, my the character if she's playing me. Um, so for those that don't know, Maya Rudolph was on Saturday Night Live in the same era as Kristen Wiig, Fred Armisen, Bill Hader, Jason Sudeikis, who's now known as, um, what's, the, what's it called, Ted 
something. So oh, Ted Lasso. I'm drawing a blank. Ted Lasso. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, or one of my friends, I'm not too sure how I feel about this in the sense of I don't think it's accurate. One of my friends thinks I look like a bit like Rashida Jones. So I think she would have to be in contention of playing me in a biopic as well. So Rashida Jones being on Parks and Recs. Yep. Uh, and played Karen on The Office. Yep, that's all right. I, look, for me, uh, I would, I'm sort of torn between like a, you know, I know he's already passed, but like a John Candy or a Denzel Washington, like some, somewhere in between, I think is, you know, uh, you know, either it's slightly chubby, you know, really funny guy or just an out and out baller who can do anything. Uh, I'm not quite sure which one I'd be closer to in real life. Actually, I'm kind of confident it's the first one, but you know, uh, that's a that's a big spectrum between the two. <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah, exactly. Range, range. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, if you could go back. Oh, sorry. Um, who, since since we've got a uh, professional commentator on here, I uh, never get to ask this question. <laughs> who is your favourite commentator? Oh, um, either probably Laurie. Chiswick uh, just edged over Carrie Graff, but yeah, Laurie Chiswick is uh, my favourite commentator at the moment. I like how she says over the quantity and I like how she, um, her analysis of the game is really sound and I like that she brings a calming presence to the commentary box as well. So yeah, Laurie Chiswick is still my favourite. Um, having said that, I still have to watch the replays of the Opals games and the parts that I've seen of the whole commentary team uh, that was selected for the FIBA Women's World Cup coverage with ESPN, including Screeny and Timsey. I've been really enjoying that. The standout, though, has been Kelsey Griffin. Her yeah, KG. Yeah, analysis yeah. was excellent. Yeah. But otherwise, still, Laurie is still the pinnacle for me. Maybe it's a bit of a sentiment as well because I used to grow up watching the WNBL game of the week on ABC on a Sunday afternoon and Laurie still used to do it then. So I think I've always just looked up to her. Yeah. The thing I like about Laurie Chiswick is um, uh, she didn't get too weirded out when at nationals, I asked for a photo with her and uh, I'd forgot to actually introduce myself before doing that. And she was still totally cool about it and was, was just really cool with uh, all the commentators that uh that were there um you know fanboying and fangirling over her and just you know it, it, she was just really cool really vibe and as you say she knows her stuff and it, that really comes through on uh, she's super on nice podcast. like i i i mean we met her at mbo one nationals yeah yeah she's just genuinely lovely genuinely uh knowledgeable and since I got to, yeah, so she, you know, met us all at NBL One Nationals and I got to see her at the Opals reunion lunch uh, during the World Cup, which I got an invite to, um, on Michelle Tim's table, actually. Um, and, yeah, and Laurie, you know, saw me from across the room and took the time to come and have a really long chat to me and told me about her experience commentating for Fever for the first time. So, She's just a genuinely nice person as well. Way to bury the lead on uh, getting invited to the Opals lunch, but that's, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's part of the Molten thing. We got to sit uh, 
We got invited to the Opal's lunch, sit on Michelle Timms' table with Robin and Tom Ma, and Tom Ma introduced himself as Robin's husband. Nice. <laughs> um, and I got a chance to tell people like Rachel Spawn and Emily McInerney face-to-face how much they meant to me as a kid and as an aspiring Opal growing up. Um, so that was really special. I could tell them that face-to-face. Nice, nice. Yeah. I'm so envious right now. But anyway. Um... <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I had a wild, most unique and very privileged experience at the World Cup. Okay, might be your last time on the show. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> all right. If you could go back and watch any game, any league, any time ever, what game would you go back and watch? Uh, um, like in person or just on TV? No, in no, person? in person, courtside. So, oh, no. in person, courtside. Yeah. yeah. Oh. That's tough. That is tough. Yeah, they're, they're not all um, actually easy yet. Easy questions. <laughs> um, I'm kind of torn between uh, a really iconic WNBA game for the Seattle Storm where the likes of LJ and Sue Bird um, were, you know, playing against a Phoenix Mercury that had Penny Taylor and DT. Like if I could see that era courtside, that would be amazing. But I can't put, I can't pick out a game in, in history in particular. Um, otherwise, actually, if there was a game I could watch courtside, it would be a game that had a massive impact on me as an 11, 12-year-old was the game when the AIS won the WNBL championship. That game has, like, stuck with me my whole life since I watched it on TV. That would be the game that I'd go back in time and watch courtside. Nice. Nice. I I love it when they're not – when they've got that personal feel to it and they're not, you know, flu game or, you know, something like like that. I know. But uh, no, no, great job, great job. All right, last question. The flu game did cross my mind, but I thought I could dig a little bit deeper. I think that answer was too easy because that AIS team, I think it was '98, that had LJ, Kristen Veal, Penny Taylor, and the Snell. Like it was ridiculous that team. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. it definitely was. All right, one last, one last question, and you're out the door. Who should we have on the show on Ball Don't Lie Australia next? So it's it's a two part style question because you can, you've got to give an answer, but it's also uh, it always helps if it's someone you have a connection with and can give us a bit of a hook up with. So who should we have on the show next here at Ball Don't Lie Australia? Well, based on what you've told me before and during the episode, I would love you to have Michelle Timms on your episode. That um, to would be able to actually be like, uh, I don't know if I could, I'm sure once I started, I'd be fine, but I'd be just be fanboying and just, Oh God, Oh God, I got to, got to, got to, got to, got to, got to, got to. But since you two, are, <coughs> excuse me, are, are best mates now after, uh, uh, <laughs> 
Oh yeah, we're besties. Yeah, yeah. No. yeah. that was, the downside would be because our producer at Shooting in the Breeze, named Mary, she does all the organizing and she's got all the contacts. So the downside being that I can't guarantee a contact or a hook or a uh, facilitate contact with Michelle Timms, but I'll see I w- see what I can come up with and see what I can do. But I think it would be awesome if you could have, you know, put put your fanboy a little bit and then you could kind of put, you know, sit next to your fanboy and put it to the side for a, for a bit. Then you can get her to talk about her, you know, her experience commentating the World Cup, working with that team, her Opals. You can get the full scoop of the Opals reunion from her because um, that was a because Timsey was instrumental in organising that Opals reunion. Um, yeah, I, I really hope I'm putting it out to the universe for you that you get Michelle Tims on as a guest. Yeah, that would be amazing. I'd I'd also want to talk to her about things things like, for example, I'm not sure if you know um, when Steph Reed, for example, um, she got the call up in the um, in the qualifying games, and Michelle Tims uh, gave her her jersey and steph reed once upon a time when she was a little one got a photo with michelle timms and you know what that how does that feel from the other side i think would be because you know those sort of moments as fans would blow your mind but how does that genuinely feel from the other side is it would that be awkward would it just be amazing would it just be sort of surreal Uh, you know don't know but yeah, it, oh, it would lead to all sorts of, you know, uh, amazing questions, I think. But Jacinta, thank you very much. Uh, one more time, what's the podcast and where where can uh, Ball Don't Lie listeners find it if they need it? So, yeah, the podcast is called Shooting the Breeze. It's a podcast dedicated to focus, to discussing and promoting women's basketball. You can find it on all good pod for, uh, pod form, pl- <laughs> podcast platforms. <laughs> Podforms uh, like Amazon, Apple, or Spotify. Uh, you can find the podcast on Twitter at The Breeze Pod, or you can find it on Instagram at Shooting The Breeze. You can also find me on Instagram at Jacinta underscore governed or on Twitter S underscore squin, just because I like to make it confusing on how people find me because <laughs> I've got two different handles. Well done. Well, thank you very much for your time and thank you for the recap of what was, as I said before, an absolutely amazing world, Women's World Cup that we're able to have here in Australia. No worries. Thank you for having me. I loved having the chat and, um, yeah, thanks for asking such great questions as well. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Ball don't lie. That ball don't lie. Huge thank you once again to Jacinta Govan for jumping on board and breaking down what, as we said, was a just an amazing uh, World Cup that we had down in Sydney. It was a great tournament all around. Thanks again, Jacinta, for for jumping on. All right, come time to come back to that league we love, where they play that sweet, sweet D. First round breakdown for the season. And not a bad opening weekend. There was, you know, some tighter games, some uh, some ones that weren't so much, but, uh, you know, solid opening round. Um, We definitely saw, for better or worse, I think what we're going to see a lot of from some teams this year. Opening round, uh, first game, we had uh, Phoenix getting over Tasmania in the end. Um, 
Adnan, just absolutely huge game. You know, he's obviously put in a whole heap of work and just talented kid all around as well. Uh, 34 and four with one steal with Mitch Creek chipping in for 23, six, two and one steal as well. And uh, in that win over Tassie, Tassie, I have some doubts with Tassie this year. They did a lot last year in their first year. Can they back that up? I've got a lot of doubts early um, that they can. But we'll have to wait and see. Um, Just see how that goes. Next game up, Kings and the Hawks. Kings were looking good, not as solid uh, and as bulletproof as they did, uh, as they were in that huge run to finish the year and win the chip last year. But certainly not bad. I thought, I, I definitely thought the Hawks did not look anywhere near. They looked woeful, frankly. Um, but Lockie Dent, Lockie Dent, Brisbane, capital, just had a game, had an absolute game. Uh, it was huge, 19 points, didn't miss from pretty much anywhere, uh, really stepped up, never uh, ne- never scored a point in the NBL. Um, until he came on ball, don't lie. Now, since he's been on ball, don't lie, he's, he's had the bump and can't miss. Is there a correlation there? Oh, look, I have to think so. I know Dan would think so too, for sure, for sure. Huge, uh, huge coming out party for Lucky Dan. Congratulations, young man. Um, but Hawks ugh, did not like what I saw in that first game. That's for sure. Uh, moving it along, though, United got the W over the breakers in our first overtime game of the season. What a great tight game that was. That actually delayed um, delayed the game of the Bullets-Wildcats game. Um, oh, big game. Brown Jr. stepped up. Uh, Xavier Rattan mays well done, sir. 33-5-9 and nine with a steal thrown in. Uh, six men from last year steps up to start the year. Classic Dan Vickerman style move with United. Really solid. Well done to United. Chris Goulding chipping in with a big game there as well. <sighs> Bullets versus the Wildcats in the jungle. All right, let's let let's rip off the band-aid and get into some bullets babble. Okay, Bullets v. Wildcats. Wildcats got it done pretty convincingly. We came out with a great start. It was like 11-2, and two, and then that was kind of it early. It was it was the Wildcats from there. From there. Bullets had a lot of trouble with the pick and roll. Um, pick and roll, the Wildcats were throwing at them. I uh, just kept fighting. Uh, uh, it's tough when you've got someone like Cotton, sure, but they just look lost on defense in big chunks of this game, which is, it's a worry because we saw a lot of this last year. We do have some different pieces, though, coming forward. Uh, Johnson, really like what I've seen so far um, from him. His timing on his cuts it was good, and he was able to draw fouls from defenders at different times and has a nice, nice stroke on his threes, um, which it looks like that's going to be a big part 
of uh, the Bullets again this year, uh, for better or worse. Mitchell, I like the way he read the O-boards. Um, he did that throughout the game. Uh, I, I like, you know, I, I like that he seemed to be able to know what his teammates were going to do. Um, but we had a lot of trouble from the guards getting the ball into our bigs. Speaking of bigs, Baines, there was a couple of flashes. Um, don't get me wrong. I didn't didn't mind what I saw from Bainesy. There was a few flashes, especially that um, little run he put together um, with Sobit at the start of the second half. There was a nice couple of minutes there of, uh, of, of classic sort of Bainesy work. Um, didn't mind what I saw from the big fella. Um, now, last year we did run a dang, 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 but unfortunately dang, dang's gone, or fortunately, depending on how you uh, come down on that side of the fence, uh, which side of the fence you come down on that one. So this year we're going to go dang, insert name here. And we had that moment uh, towards the end of the second uh, second quarter where we had dang, Khadib went up for a gorgeous looking hook shot. Unfortunately, it bounced off the rim, but who was waiting there? Mitchell just jumped up just with a lovely put-back dunk. Really just, ooh, nice little, just ooh, and then straight back on D, which I loved even more. Uh, yeah, really solid in that sort of moment. Krebs, uh, great to see that he's part of the leadership group. Um, you know, friend of the show, obviously. I think we've really got to see more from him. He missed way more than what we saw last year. He missed way too many, way too many uh, open threes from the field last year. Um, you know, and that's one of the big things he's there for. He's got to step up that NBL level, NBL one level that he's been, you know, been crushing it last two years at that level. Wasn't able to extend that and bring that game with him up to NBL last year. So far, well, he had he knocked down three threes in this game uh, off 21 minutes on the court. Um, good start, solid. Need to see uh, that consistently throughout uh, throughout the year. Uh, Sobes, obviously on limited minutes, didn't really feel as if he had an impact at all in this game. Like there was mild flashes. So, um, yeah, look. It a little bit of a head scratcher out of the first one. It is only early into the season. These guys haven't all like not everyone's been there, you know, for all these off season scrimmages and different things. They've had additions late. Let's see how it develops before we completely write them off. I think they've got a lot of talent. I definitely think we can have a much better season than next year. How are things going to go defensively though? <sighs> Jeez, that's tough. Uh, it's tough to know when, Seeing similar signs early, um, but like I said, give them the benefit of the doubt. Long season ahead. We'll see how we go. Perth side of the ball, though. Cotton, well, Cotton hasn't changed. Cotton, still doing Cotton things. 23, 12, and 6. You know, we're still seeing the three-time MVP of the league play at that high clip right from the jump. Um, yeah. Uh, how, how long can he do it for? God knows, but I'm going to enjoy watching it while he can. Even if he is doing it against the the bullets, it's it's still pretty to watch. Travers, 
after being drafted and, you know, Cavs staying connected and he just looks calmer this year. looks much more relaxed. And I actually didn't mind the, uh, the big manic, uh, look comfortable shooting that, uh, that, that long range bomb didn't shy away from at any stage. You know, yes, that's what he's there for, but look like a nice stroke, not too bad from him. So Perth, Ooh, uh, absolute flip side. They look like they've got something going early. Um, said it earlier, John really looks to be really good at what he does so far after one week, small data pool. I'll grant you, um, Perth looking good. Brisbane got some work to do and, uh, hopefully they can turn it around sooner rather than later, but reps together that will all help. And hopefully, uh, Brizzy can get it done. Uh, and you know, we do have that. We don't have to get all the way into the top four this year. We've only got to get into the top six. We're in the play in situation. So look, hopefully that'll, that'll help us get over the line. Uh, Last game of the round, we had Jack Jumpers and Taipans. Jack Jumpers were able to get out to early lead and stick with the Taipans after that up to half, but Taipans just had a monster third quarter, 39 to 17 in that third quarter. And Jack Jumpers just couldn't come back. Um, yeah, like I said, I, I think it's going to be a really tough year for the Jack Jumpers. <sighs> Injury returns and things depending. Could be a long season. Could be a long season. Um, Taipans, again, interesting start for them because they have games where they they you know can absolutely play out of their skins. But can they do that consistently? Um, last year, they were almost bulletproof against Brisbane. Um, but can they put together performances like this uh, year, throughout the season? We'll have to wait and see. Uh, they could be a bit of a dark horse this year. Um, they appear to be going with more of a, you know, got a couple of stars and doing it by committee from three by looks. So, hey, they could uh, they could be just one of those teams that lights it up for a few weeks and disappears for a couple more. We'll just have to wait and see exactly how that shakes out for the Taipans. But... Time to head over to that that other, that other league, that, that that big lead over the big ditch, as Dan says. And we've got the NBA versus the NBL. Adelaide come out, great win. Um, awesome. I don't want to overdo it like I feel some others out there have, but I certainly don't want to take anything away from Adelaide. It's really awesome to see. Uh, first non, uh, first NBA NBL team to do it in preseason. Great stuff. Fantastic. First non-NBA team to do it since 2016 Real Madrid with Luca. Great. Fantastic. Um, what does it tell us though? Adelaide did a great job in the off season. Well, most of us already sort of had that feeling. Um, you know, so again, great stuff. Phoenix. What's it say about Phoenix? Well, it sort of says, a lot of us sort of saw at the end of last season and weren't quite sure what we're going to see if they're going to have, you know, some issues with different things. Well, it looks like there's still some question marks and concerns, you know, that have carried over to this year, but I certainly don't want to, you know, I don't want to overstate it, but 
I don't want to get caught in understating it either. It's a big deal. It is also a preseason game, but well done to the Adelaide 36ers. Stepped up big. They've got the next game coming up. See how they go. But uh, Craig Randall, 35 points. Well done. AC, Antonius Cleveland, 22-5-1. And Robert Franks, 32-7-2 of 62% from the field. Wowzers. Um, this is why Adelaide are, are my pick to take it all this year. Uh, that, but, you know, after a game like this, they might, their own success might get in their way. You know, NBA might come a knocking and depending on the contracts that uh, have been signed, if there's NBA out clauses, hey, you know, that, uh, that might slow them down, but we'll just have to wait and see. Good first game. Again, small data, still preseason technically. It's a very cool, very, you know, very awesome thing. Unfortunately, it doesn't really count for anything, um, but still an awesome thing to happen and to be the first NBL team to do it, well done. And how amazing uh, as well, friend of the show, Mitch McCarron, just showing that he absolutely um, – is suited to to a team like this is the kind of old-fashioned point guard you want on a team like this with some other guys who need the ball to go through them he's an assist man 16 assists absolutely fantastic brilliant um again that's why they're my pick uh to take out the nbl we'll just have to see who can you know who's going to stay with um the 36s and depending on contracts and things could be interesting, could be interesting. But while we're over there uh, in the U S of a, let's talk some NBA news. Going to keep it pretty light this week. Uh, <laughs> let's start with my team. Boston Celtics have signed Blake Griffin to a one year veteran deal. Look, I like this uh, as an on court. It's, the on-court perspective, I like it. Um, problem with Boston at the moment is they've got more question marks around this season than uh, Jim Carrey's The Riddler suit from those 90s Batman movies. Like, what's going on behind the scenes? What are we going to see on the court? God knows. We'll just have to. It's a classic wait-and-see scenario. Could be one of those, you know, one of those seasons that's talked about forever for the right reasons, for the wrong reasons, could be mediocre, could be average, could be borderline brilliant. We'll just have to wait and see how well it all comes together. But yeah, a lot of question marks, unfortunately. A lot, lot. But moving along, uh, Giddy. Again, it's only preseason, but almost a triple-double in that first win over the Nuggets. 14, 12, and 9 for Giddy. Great job. And then dabbing it up with, uh, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Jack White after the game, uh, halfway line. Awesome stuff. Great Aussie moment. Fantastic. Speaking of Aussies, um, oh, sorry, speaking of the Nuggets, uh, it's also come out this week that their mascot, Rocky, is the highest paid in NBA, in the NBA at $625,000 US dollars. 
or in Australian dollars at the moment, that's what, 12 million. It's just absolutely huge amount of money. But also think about it, apart from Benny the Bull, you know, name a, name a mascot, you know, it's tough. Rocky's, Rocky's one of those ones that, you know, I could before, uh, I know lucky for the Celtics, but there's not many out there that you could, you could genuinely name and remember. So obviously doing a great job for the Nuggets and that's why he's getting paid. All right. Ben Simmons, his return to actual, to an actual basketball court to play an actual proper preseason, but still proper game of basketball. And what did we see? He's still a talented baller. He can still do the things that he could do beforehand. A lot of the things he couldn't do, he still can't do. But he's a, he's a talented guy who looks like he hasn't played basketball in about a year and a half because he hasn't really played at this level for about a year and a half. He'll get better. He'll run himself into shape and all sort, those sorts of things. Preseason, regular season have never been his issue, though. Um, you know, it's that postseason and how much the Nets can rely on him down the stretch. Brooklyn, a lot of firepower, a lot of talent. Is everybody committed? Is everybody going to be able to work together this entire season? If they do, look out league. But we've been waiting. We've been waiting for Brooklyn since, basically since Kyrie arrived. We knew it was going to be, you know, at that first year, KD getting healthy and then bam, we haven't seen a lot. So... Still question marks, but they have a heck of a lot of talent and could have something special. Could have something special. But again, question marks for days. All right, that's going to wrap up our NBA talk today. Uh, no crack em this week. We had a ma massive and monster, <clears throat> excuse me, massive and monster uh, World Cup breakdown earlier. So, uh, just a big shout out to, again to Jacinta Govan. Thank you for coming on board. Uh, LJ, the swung song she deserved, you know, getting a 30 piece in that final game. Absolutely amazing. Mal's machination of the week. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was in the shops um, on the day of uh, Ben Simmons's first game back and I saw. Uh, a, a particular gentleman who was rocking a was it uh, Ben Simmons 76ers jersey with matching shorts and basketball shoes and the whole whole kit and caboodle and he certainly didn't look like a baller but he was he was loving it nevertheless um so my initial thought was Oh, buddy, yeah, that, that's a classic basketball faux pas. Matching shirt, like matching singlet and shorts. You know, you only do that when you're playing on the court. That, that that goes back to one of those unspoken rules, unwritten rules that just goes back forever. Unless you're a little kid, of course. But then my next thought was, oh, mate, go for it. You know, if you're a fan, be a fan. 
do you. Just do you. All good. Have fun with it. Be a fan. Support who you support. All right. That is going to wrap us up here tonight. We're all done. Number 84 in the books. Remember, get on those socials, share, pump, like, all those sorts of things. Uh, get the basketball, uh, ball don't lie, Australia, sorry. Uh, you know, get us out there, share us around. Before you know it, Dan will be back. We'll have more and more uh, guests in the meantime checking in for different parts. Uh, we will be off air for... Uh, next week. So we'll have another week off and then we'll back to uh, more regular week by week um, podcasting. But in the meantime, share us around, like our stuff, get on the socials. Uh, we're, we're across them all. Ball don't lie, Australia. Get around it. And uh, just remember that ball don't lie, baby. <laughs>